there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. In the 1870s, state and religious groups in the U.S. and Canada built what they called boarding schools. Native children were taken from their homes and families and sent far away so they could, quote, learn how to be white. It was a gradual form of genocide, and it continued for generations. About a hundred years later, activists and Native people finally convinced the federal government to do something about it. Thus was born the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA. It was passed in 1978. The system created by that act, the people it affects, and the people who want to roll back the clock, that's what fellow Crooked Media host Rebecca Nagel explores in season two of This Land. She is our guest this week, and she is coming right up. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I very much appreciate the content warning you do at the beginning of your show. Would you mind doing it here? Because we're going to be discussing the same stuff. Yeah. So at the top of the podcast, what we say is the stories we're sharing this season touch on different forms of trauma. Please take care of yourself while you listen. We're big fans of taking care of yourself here. So I really love that. How would you like to introduce yourself today? Sure. Um Gohin Dawdon Talek Ayetli Gela Talek Jinel Joplin, Missouri, Awatesadola. Um my name is Rebecca Nagel. I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation. I live in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and I grew up in Joplin, Missouri. You have a little bit on the podcast about what that introduction means, like why that is an indigenous person's introduction of themselves. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. Um, So, I mean, a lot of times, um, you know, sometimes Native people try to, um, when we introduce ourselves, introduce ourselves um, in our languages and what goes into that introduction. I think, you know, it's really dependent on people's community and culture and tribe. Um, And I I also would mention that I am not even close or anything remotely close to a speaker of my language, but I am learning. Um, And so in my introduction, um, I say my name, that I'm a citizen of Turkey Nation, um, where I live and where I'm from. And then often when I introduce myself, I'll also introduce who my family is. Um, So who my parents are, who my sisters are, and um, where my family is from, too. And then usually once you get to who your relatives are, then people can kind of place you and know where you're from. 
And that is sort of a preview of what we're going to be talking about in a way, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. the embedding of a person in their community. So I want to talk about your podcast. And I'd like to set the stage with a little bit of history. People probably heard about the hundreds of graves uh, that were discovered at the site of Canadian boarding schools. I don't know if people know that the U.S. had as big a system, if, if, if not bigger. I don't know. Could you talk a little bit about that, uh, wh- when it started, how big it was, how pervasive it was? Yeah. So um, starting in the 1870s, um, the United States operated, um, opened uh, government-run boarding schools. Um, And I I think one thing that's happening that's really interesting right now is people are debating this word school, right? Because Mm -hmm. the purpose of them was clearly not education. Um, But the first one that opened uh, was called the Carlisle Indian Industrial School um, in Pennsylvania. And it was the brainchild of a man named Richard Henry Pratt. And he had actually fought um, in the U.S. Army um, against Native nations um, in some really, really violent um, massacres and battles. And um, he, with some Native people who had been actually kept as prisoners of war, tried out this idea of um, if we can educate Native people and basically assimilate them to white society, then it's a different way of getting rid of Native people. And so that first experiment with prisoners of war was so successful, the army gave him an entire <laughs> school. Can I can I time out to ask how they define, it's not funny at all, but how would you define successful from that point of view? Well, you know, you see, um, you see a lot of these very staged photographs from that era uh-huh. um, that, now are, I think, deeply disturbing, but at the time were a sign of the success. And so how they measured success was how assimilated the Native children Mm. were to white society. And so um, there were these displays of, um, you know, the children dressing like white people, you know, speaking English like white people. Um, And so these boarding schools... um, Many were operated by the U.S. federal government, and then churches operated hundreds more. Um, So there were over 400 schools open across the United States, and they stayed open for the better part of the century. Um, And it's, you know, there's a federal inquiry happening right now, um, and so it's hard to pin down um, exact numbers, but some people have estimated that at the height of the boarding school era, about a third of Native children um, had been placed in these schools. And the goal was really to separate Native children from their culture, from their language, from their families. Um, and, and I think that the boarding school era is also really important to understand in context. And so when we talk about um, the genocide of indigenous peoples in the United States, there are, um, I mean, of course, it's more complicated than this, and it's very, you know, simplistic to put things all in one bucket. But there are sort of these different eras where there was a period of time where the United States used things like massacres, starvation, concentration camps, death marches um, to annihilate indigenous people. And boarding schools represents this pivot towards assimilation, towards this idea of if we can make make Native people more like Europeans, eventually 
there won't be Native people anymore. And so boarding schools um, isn't the only policy that pushed towards that. You know, you start seeing um, things like the Urban Relocation Program, um, the uh, Blood Quantum, and all of these other things sort of with the same idea of getting rid of indigenous people. And so I think it's really important for people to understand that context. And when you look at the writings at the time, it was, it was the stated goal, you know, one of Henry Pratt's most, um, uh, famous quotes is, um, get rid of the Indian, save the man. Yes, I actually have boarding school and quotation marks throughout my notes because I feel like neither of those terms are, are really good for what they were. They were more like um, hostage uh, centers uh, where people were forcibly reeducated, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think, you know, as we're going through the trauma of discovering these graves in Canada and, you know, we're going to have a similar reckoning in the United States as these sites start to be investigated, I think the burial of the children that went there is evidence that the goal wasn't education because the death of those children didn't run counter um, to the goal of those schools. You know, and um, Richard Henry Pratt, the man who um, sort of was one of the biggest champions of these schools in the United States, one of his most famous quotes is, um, kill the Indian, save the man. So the idea really was the genocide of indigenous people and cultures. When did you learn about boarding schools? The boarding schools in quotation marks? Oh, huh. I don't know. Um, I don't know that there was like a As a time. kid? Yeah, I don't know that I have like a specific memory. I think, um, yeah, I don't think there's like a moment where I'm like, oh my God, I didn't know that this happened. Um, I would say that probably um, one of the most, like one of the experiences that I've had that really stuck with me, and I talk about this in the podcast, is that um, when I, I used to live on the East Coast and when I lived in Baltimore a few years on Memorial Day weekend, I went and with a group of um, Native leaders from Pennsylvania and then from the D.C. area decorated the graves of the children who were buried at Carlisle. It's one of the schools where um, the graves are marked. And so um, we would they would do that every year. And I got to participate a few years. And I think for that, um, that really drove home um, just how much was lost, lost in those places. A lot of Black people I know grew up knowing about Tuskegee, you know, grew up knowing about the Juneteenth celebration. They grew up knowing the history of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Like they didn't learn it in school. It's just kind of this cultural knowledge that it just sort of it surrounds you. And I've always thought about that as like that's survival. You know, those are stories that you tell in your culture in order. So you are telling the children, this is who you're up against basically. And I think it's, I think it's complicated because I think things like, um, I think a lot of our community members who attended boarding schools, like, I think it's important to note that the people, a a lot of people who went to those schools are still with us and still Mm -hmm. carrying that trauma. And I think how much it is talked about really depends on the community, the family, um, and the individual survivor, you know? Right. Part of the boarding school a project was to get Native children adopted out, right? That was that was a separate 
policy. So there was um, there was a policy called the Federal Indian Adoption Project. And the Bureau of Indian Affairs worked with the Child Welfare League of America to place Native children, um, to adopt them out and place them in white homes. And so Mm -hmm. there was the federal program um, that was working on that on a federal level. And then at the same time, you had local and state child welfare agencies um, looking at Native families and saying, you know, coming to conclusions like, well, this child is being raised by his grandparents instead of his parents, so this is neglect or abandonment because the parents aren't here. And so there was a lot of, um, at the same time, racism and bias in the system and how local and state child welfare agencies were treating Native families. And so um, it all kind of came to the he- head at the in the late 1960s, and um, there was a big national survey that was done that was how many Native children are in some form of out-of-home placement, how many Native children are living away from their family and their tribe. And the survey found that nationally, 25 to 35 percent of all Native kids were, were away from their family and tribes. And that big survey was what really spurred the Indian Child Welfare Act. And so in Canada, people call it the 60s scoop. Um, Here in the United States, sometimes people call it the Federal Indian Adoption Project. But it's this era where um, the, the racism at the time, the thinking at the time, was that these children were better off in white homes. There's some kind of dawning realization that we should do something different, right? So you have the Indian Child Welfare Act. I'm curious, just was there so much outrage that that's what kind of set the table for it? Or- yeah, and it it took a long time. So um, uh, there's a case in Minnesota that got some national press, and then that spurred um, the national survey. And then it was another decade before the law right. passed. And so there was congressional testimony. Um, there was advocacy at the local and the national level. And I think one thing that's actually really interesting about the legislative history is that as families and tribes um, became more aware of the abuses that were happening within the child welfare system, um, people also started litigating these cases. And so a lot of what is written into the Indian Child Welfare Act itself is from um, the problems that people were seeing in the child welfare systems and also the things that worked to fix that. And so ICWA is a complicated law. It does more than one thing. Um, But I think of it as sort of like a set of guardrails so that when a Native child um, enters the child welfare system or enters any kind of adoption proceedings, there's a set of guardrails that um, make sure, that help keep that child connected to their family and their tribe. And that solved everything. So no, Indian children, no. <laughs> not at all. Oh, okay. Sorry. I just, I just assumed, you know, we did something. So it yeah, must have solved I mean, every problem that people had with the, uh, Indian child welfare. It's called the Indian Child Welfare Act, Rebecca. Like, what what yeah, more do you need? I, mean, I think, um, you know, I think that you can think of ICWA as existing um, in an era where we see a lot of laws passed to try and correct structural racism, especially mm-hmm. that's being done by states, right? So you look at like the Voting Rights Act, right? And it is looking at all of the different ways 
that states, particularly southern states, tried to prevent Black people from exercising their right to vote. And so there are all of these different measures that are put into the Voting Rights Act to um, try and prevent that from happening. But that doesn't mean that the problem is solved. And so I think similarly, um, we still see a lot of racism and a lot of bias against Native families in the child welfare system. And so the statistics and the disproportionality of Native kids entering foster care is still there. So like a couple examples, um, in one of the cases that we talk about in the podcast took place in Minneapolis and Hennepin County. And um, in Hennepin County, Native children are 35 times more likely than white children to be removed from their parents. Um, In Minnesota, about a third of Native children um, will enter foster care before their 18th birthday. Um, I can't remember exactly. I think it's in six. I think in six U.S. states, um, Native children have a one in two chance of being investigated by CPS. Mm. And um, and you see similar um, statistics and disproportionality um, for Black children. And so I think a lot of what's happening within the child welfare system, when we look at what children are reported um, of the families that are reported to CPS, which families are investigated, of the families that are investigated, which which children are actually removed from the home. Um, there's just huge racial disproportionality um, across the system and a lot of bias in the system. And I think it also intersects a lot um, with poverty because it, um, uh, you know, the number one reason why Native children are removed from their family is not because of any form of abuse. It's neglect. And I think Mm. that a lot of times um, a family that is struggling with poverty can be labeled as being neglectful. One of the people you interview makes such a great point that the state would rather spend thousands of dollars to place that child in another home than like give that family money for food, like $100 for food. Yeah. And I think what's heartbreaking is that, um, you know, while we were investigating this bigger federal lawsuit, we dug into the particulars of these cases. And there are these moments where, um, you know, there are underlying issues, but there's this crisis that leads to the child welfare system getting involved. Right. And, you know, a lot of times it's those things where if there were more supports in place for these families, it would have never gotten to that point, you know? So it's like if they weren't mm-hmm. struggling with housing, if they weren't struggling with um, with employment or with addiction, and, and if we had better systems in place to support families, um, I think a lot of um, the children, a lot of foster care would be preventable. And I would really send people to the work. Um, we we interview um, a woman, Anita Finday from the Casey Family um, from Casey Family Programs, and they're really um, they're on the grounds working with foster care systems in different states, and their goal in is trying to improve foster care because that's a whole other conversation of like what mm-hmm. are the outcomes for children who are placed in foster care, but they're also trying to prevent the need for foster care. Where if we can support families um, earlier. And if we can pr- just have basically more of a safety net for families, in a lot of situations, it can actually prevent the need for foster care in the first place. And of course, that's what's best for children because, um, you know, the disruption 
of foster care in and of itself is a disruption and a trauma for that child. Rebecca, hold on just a minute. We're going to do some ads. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Rad Power Bikes. Getting out of the house and enjoying nature is more important than ever. A great way to do it, a Rad Power Bike. Did you ever wonder why electric bikes are so exciting? What makes them so popular? Have you ever wondered what it would be like to laugh while zooming uphill on a bicycle? You can find out now. Rad Power Bikes were voted Best Affordable Electric Bike by Electric Bike Review, and they're North America's largest electric bike brand. And they're half the price of other e-bikes. Whether you want a new way to get around town or to be out in nature, even with the kiddos in tow, you've got to try Rad Power Bikes. They're a great way to get outside and climb those steep hills without getting too hot. They are tons of fun. Whether you're running errands, taking the kiddos on an adventure, or commuting back to the office, Rad Power Bikes make every trip more fun. With up to five levels of assisted hill climbing power, you can even pedal without getting really sweaty, if you like. Rad Power Bikes are affordable. E-bikes usually cost $3,000. A Rad Power Bike starts at $9.99, and most are under $1,500. They're great for commuting, getting out on the trail, hauling groceries, or taking your kids anywhere they gotta be. Got a question? Rad Power Bikes has dedicated U.S. customer support. They're there when you need them. Rad Power Bikes are the perfect gift for someone who loves to be active and outside. And now, for a limited time, Rad Power Bikes offers flexible financing for as low as 0% APR, plus free shipping. Bikes are going super fast, so make your order right away. Text FRIENDS to 64000 today and get free shipping. That's FRIENDS to 64000, 64000, FRIENDS to 64000. Terms apply, available at radpowerbikes.com slash terms, and again, Text FRIENDS to 64,000. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Monk Pack. Let's face it. Most healthy snacks don't taste very good, don't fill you up, and don't satisfy your cravings. Our sponsor, Monk Pack, makes snacks that satisfy a sweet tooth, but with just one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars have less than one gram of sugar, just two to three grams of net carbs, and they're only 150 calories. They're the perfect snack for anyone trying to eat healthier or cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. They're great after a workout for a job well done. I take them hiking and it's true. I just eat them. I gave a bunch to my neighbor and she loves them. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars are a perfect balance of sweet and salty, crunchy from the nuts and seeds, but still soft and chewy. You can get them in tasty flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, caramel sea salt, and peanut butter dark chocolate. The ones with a little more salt are my favorites, which just means the ones I just listed are my favorites. There are also some that have coconut in it, which tastes a little bit sweeter to me and more of like a dessert feeling. They have nuts and seeds for a nice crunch, but they're not too hard. And you don't get the high intensity sweetness or aftertaste from sugar alcohols that a lot of keto items have. They're perfect for satisfying the sweet tooth without feeling guilty. Have a monk pack keto nut and seed bar after breakfast, running errands, or after a workout. They're keto-friendly, gluten-free, plant-based. They have no soy, trans fat, or sugar alcohols or artificial colors. I have a subscription to my favorite flavors to make sure I'm always stocked. It saves me 10% on every order and they ship automatically. Try for yourself and see. We have a special deal for listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any monk pack product 
by visiting monkpack.com and entering the code WFLT at checkout. And Monkpack is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, go to monkpack.com, that's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product, then enter code WFLT at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monkpack. Delicious, nutritious food you can count on, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. With Friends Like These, it's brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper, shampoo to pet food, Public Goods is your new everything store thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful streamlined aesthetic. And that aesthetic extends beyond the packaging. They have simple, beautiful glassware, dishes, and flatware. And I don't know about you, but having a calm visual environment where everything matches kind of keeps my insides calm too. It's also important to know what's in your products and where they come from. Making small changes in the way we shopped can have a huge impact on our health and the planet and public goods helps you make those changes. They use a membership model to keep costs low and give customers even more savings. You can make your first purchase with no obligation. Every time you order, they plant a tree. They're all about sustainability Join hundreds of thousands of people who have switched their new everything store. And we've worked out an awesome deal just for with friends like these listeners. Receive $15, that's $15, one five, off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again. They're going to give you $15 to spend on your first purchase. Plus, right now, receive your choice of either a free pack of bamboo straws or reusable storage wraps with your order. Like I said, they're all about sustainability. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash friends to receive $15 off your first order. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the systemic problem here? Like, just pull back a little. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that in this country we have to have a really hard conversation about what it means to take care of our children. You know, I think we have a lot of rhetoric around, you know, saving children, um, and 
And I, I think what's cruel about foster care from my perspective and from my reporting is that we we come in as the government, we come in as, you know, as the state of Oklahoma or whatever agency and say to a child, like, you are so unsafe in your home. We are going to take you away from your home and your parents because we care that much about your safety. But then we put that child into a system that we don't fund adequately to make sure that that child has the support and the care that they need to thrive, or even in a lot of jurisdictions, to make sure that that child is safe in that system. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to have a hard conversation because I think what's best for children is what's best for families. Um, And I Mm -hmm. think that, you know, really, when we look at preventing the need for foster care, that looks like more support for families. And I think we have, um, in our society, we just (laughs) lack the political will um, to give families, especially families that are living in poverty, more support. Let's talk a little bit more about families. Because, and this almost refers back to, to the introduction you gave yourself, because the community aspect of raising a child and the intergenerational trauma that happens when you take the community out, forget, I mean, don't forget family, but family is just a part of something even larger, right? And we know that Black people suffer intergenerational trauma as well. But do you want to talk a little bit about the specific kind of track that happens here, like between if you if you can draw a line from the boarding schools to foster care? Yeah. And I, I think people, you know, people are really talking about this right now, Um You know, it's interesting because Canada and Australia are both going through these national reckonings also with their their version of boarding schools um, in Australia with the stolen generation and in Canada and residential schools. And what Indigenous leaders are saying there um, is that, you know, it's great that you're apologizing for these past sins, government, but foster care is the modern version of that. Mm-hmm. And so in it's not just in the United States, but in other settler colonial countries that have this almost this very similar history of boarding schools, the modern day version of that is foster care. And so I think that, um, you know, I. I I'm not adopted, and so I can't speak for other people, but when we listen to adult adoptees, um, and especially Native adult adoptees and other transracial adult adoptees, what they say is that they grew up without a sense of self, and they grew up without a strong sense of identity, and that identity formation... um, that that was really hard for them. And so, you know, we talked to adult adoptees who lived in um, homes where there was abuse, like homes where they were not safe. And we also talked to adult adoptees who lived in very loving homes, but still had this sense of not knowing who they were and not having a connection to their culture um, that, you know, we have to look at Indigenous children and really see that that connection and that grounding in who they are and that connection to their language and their culture is their birthright. And so, um, yeah, and so that that separation of children is is still happening. And that is why the Indian Child Welfare Act is a, still a really important and really needed law. You mentioned the reckoning. We are having an official reckoning of sorts right now. The Federal Indian Boarding School Truth Initiative. Um, and I think maybe here's where we can add how important it is that Deb Holland 
is our is our Secretary of the Interior. So, uh, do you want to talk about that? What that is? Yeah. So um, after. Um, there was press of First Nations in Canada finding um, mass graves at the sites of former residential schools. Um, Secretary Holland announced that there's going to be an investigation into schools in the United States. And so here in the U.S., we don't have complete records from these schools. Um, A lot of information has never been made public. And we also haven't located Um, the graves and the bodies of the children who didn't survive those places. And so um, there is currently an investigation that's being led under Secretary Holland by the Department of the Interior, which is the department um, that at one point ran those schools, um, to Mm -hmm. try and bring answers to the community and to those families. And in case people don't know, Deb Holland is herself Indigenous. And Mm -hmm. it took, it is not great actually, that it took the wonderful occasion of an Indigenous person being Secretary of the Interior to have this happen. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people have pointed that out, that, you know, that there was no reason the Interior couldn't have done this sooner. (laughs) None at all. I mean, again, we celebrate her being there, but could have been sooner. Uh, Most recently, I heard that they might do some kind of hotline um, for people that have experience with this kind of intergenerational trauma uh, you mentioned when I was talking to you before the show that Canada has one, that, that they provide resources for people who've been through this and want, to fi- and want to find out more, want to get help. What happens here? Yeah, I think that um, there are some senators that are talking about establishing a similar hotline in the United States, which I think would be great. Um, you know, we... In in creating the podcast, we created like a resource page on the website um, for different resources. And one of the things that really struck me was that when I was looking for hotlines or even just like reading material and websites for um, adult adoptees, um, it's really hard to find those resources. A lot of the resources, most of the resources online in the adoption community are for adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's Another shift that we need to make in our society is that when we're talking about adoption and um, how adoption should work and what it should look like and what are the limitations of adoption, what are the benefits, that we really need to do more work, I think, to center the voices of adoptees because a lot of times um, they get left out of that conversation. And I want to continue this conversation. We're going to take another quick break. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Wild Alaskan Company. Do you love ordering fish at restaurants but never make it at home? Because which fish tastes best? What kind of cut should you use? What's the quality like? With Wild Alaskan Company, buying seafood and making it at home is easy. Wild Alaskan Company delivers sustainably sourced, high-quality seafood right to your door. Pick salmon, whitefish, or a combination. Every month, there's a new special. You get high-quality seafood, individually wrapped, ready to cook, and easy to prepare. Wild Alaskan Company seafood is how nature intended. Always wild, never farmed, never modified, no antibiotics. You can adjust, pause, or cancel your membership at any time. They guarantee 100% satisfaction or your money back. Get your nutrition from nature with Wild Alaskan Company. And right now, you can get $15 off your first box of premium seafood when you visit wildalaskancompany.com slash friends. 
That's wildalaskancompany.com slash friends for $15 off your first box. wildalaskancompany.com slash friends. And make sure to use our URL to let them know we sent you. With Friends Like These is brought to you by ZocDoc. How often does this happen to you? You look for a doctor. You find one you like. You wait on hold for an appointment. You rearrange your schedule. And then when you get there, the doctor doesn't take your insurance. There is a solution. Download the free ZocDoc app to find a great doctor and book an appointment fast. Using ZocDoc, you can find local doctors who take your insurance. You can read verified patient reviews and book an appointment in person or over video chat. You'll never wait on hold with a receptionist again. It doesn't matter if you need to see a primary care physician, a dentist, a dermatologist, a psychiatrist, an eye doctor, or another specialist. Sign up for free at ZocDoc.com friends. That's ZocDoc.com friends. Millions of people use ZocDoc every month, and ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com friends and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash friends. With Friends Like These, it's brought to you by Allbirds. Allbirds tree runners are made with sustainable, natural materials that are better for the planet. The tree runners are breathable, machine washable, and made with responsibly sourced eucalyptus tree fiber. It's a versatile shoe that will go with any outfit. I keep them by the door just to get the mail or walk the dog. They're also great for when your feet are going to get wet whether it's muddy hiking or maybe going to the lake. That's what I use them for. Allbirds has been dedicated to reducing environmental impact since day one, incorporating sustainable practices like using natural materials and acquiring carbon offsets. Throughout the business, they treat the world like a key stakeholder. Allbirds tree runners are made with eucalyptus tree fibers for comfy, breathable upper and sweet foam midsoles made with the first carbon negative EVA resin. Keep things light and breezy with the Allbirds Tree Runner. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's allbirds, A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com. So your podcast is about a lawsuit that would repeal what ICWA, uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act, for reasons that have nothing to do with its flaws or what it doesn't do. It's not about replacing it with something better. It's not even really about the kids, but there's kind of a cover story for the lawsuit. Could you tell us what the cover story is, what it, what it looks like from the outside? Yeah. So the story, um, the name of the lawsuit is Brackeen v. Holland. And the story of the lawsuit is that this white couple that live in the suburbs of Dallas um, were fostering a native child and they wanted to adopt that child. They felt like they were the best home for that child because they had raised him for about a year. Um, and they were told that they couldn't adopt that child because of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, and so they sued, um, and they sued the Department of the Interior and their lawsuit is to, um, say that the Indian Child Welfare Act is unconstitutional and they were joined by three states and then two other foster families. Um, and so it's kind of, it's a complicated kind of big sprawling lawsuit. Um, but basically it's, um, these three foster families who all fostered and wanted to adopt native children 
And then they say that ICWA, either one family was not able to adopt the native child, the other two actually did adopt the native children in their care. Um, So either ICWA getting in the way of the adoption or making it more difficult um, violated their constitutional rights. Right. So if we were covering this for like a right wing radio talk show, <laughs> what I would do now is be like, reverse discrimination. Oh, my yeah. God. It's or, reverse or, discrimination. Or NPR or CNN. Oh, is, like the, is, is the that last what they time, say, too? Yeah. The last time ICWA <laughs> was in front of the Supreme Court, that was the story that the native child was like in a loving home and this bad law Um was ripping that child away from the only home that she had ever known. And so that's that's the story that's been told about ICWA um, now for the better part of a decade without a lot of journalists asking what I would say are basic questions, both about, you know, what actually happened in these custody cases um, and does this rise to the level of violating someone's constitutional rights? And then also what is happening in this lawsuit? Um, and why why is it being brought? Like, are we are we really pouring millions of dollars into a federal lawsuit because everyone's so concerned about this toddler, or is there more going on here? <laughs> okay, it's a little bit of a spoiler alert. Just in a second, we're going to do the big twist. But I want to just say something about loving home, the use of the phrase loving home, because you said earlier we have to talk about what we mean by taking care of children, right? And the casualness with which people say, oh, why take this kid away from a loving home to put him with his grandparents? What do they mean by loving home? Sometimes I wonder. It seems like they mean (laughs) white, well off, you know, is is that kind of the 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 sleight of hand that's happening there? It is. Yes. And one of the things we did during our investigation is we got um, our hands on the transcripts of some of the actual custody cases. So not the big federal lawsuit about the constitutionality Mm -hmm. of ICWA, but in court, these foster parents talking about why they were the better home for the native child. And you can see... um, the classism in all of it. You know, one in one case, um, one of the foster dads was worried that the great aunt's home was too small and that maybe it would be okay for the child to share a bedroom when she's a child, but would she have privacy when she was a teenager? Mm. She needed to live in a home where she had her own bedroom. In another case, the foster dad um, was concerned at that point the child was actually living back with her grandmother, and the foster dad thought that since she had moved back in with her grandmother, that the child, who I believe was seven at the time, had gained weight, and that they had Mm. done a better job of managing that child's diet and weight, and it was in her best interest to live with a family that managed her diet and weight better than her grandma did. And so the when you get down to the specifics of the reasons, um, it's things like that. Yeah. I want to get into the twist, but I have to say that in thinking about this way that we define loving home and what we think of as taking care of children, I think people should realize that hurts rich white kids too, in a way. Like if we define having all you need materially is all you need to grow up, Mm -hmm. then there's a bunch of abuse and neglect happening, you know, in, in huge homes with three cars and maid service. 
you know, and yeah. it, it, it would be a difficult, this difficult, difficult conversation we need to have needs to apply to everyone. Is all yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the, um, one of the interviews that really struck me, I talked to actually a family court judge and he said, you know, I know that within my jurisdiction, there are upper middle class and middle class white families that are abusing substances and are dependent on substances. And I don't see those families in my courtroom. Like, and he yeah. just oversees child welfare cases. And, you know, he said the families that I see in my courtroom coming in here when the underlying issue is substance abuse are families of color and families that are poor. And so I think that, you know, I, I think the child welfare system, you know, it's kind of the same thing we see in the criminal justice system where it's like, okay, we know a lot of white people are smoking pot, you know, <laughs> like we know yeah. white people are using drugs at similar rates, but then who is actually going to jail for using those drugs? And I think we see um, similar disproportionality in the child welfare system. In, in AA, sometimes we say, when people talk about being functional alcoholics, we're like, oh, you mean white. You mean white <laughs> alcoholic. <laughs> we're just going to talk a little bit more about what the ICWA was intended to do before the big twist. Everyone get excited. Uh <laughs> I loved the comparison you made to the Voting Rights Act because the Voting Rights Act is a great act. You know, we love it. It's just been hollowed out and attacked by states. And that's sort of what's happening with ICWA. Yeah. And part of the twist is that some of the same people who've been attacking the oh. Voting Rights Act are some of the same people that are now <laughs> All filing briefs or helping bring these cases. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think ICWA does a few things. Um, like I said, it, it it doesn't just do one thing. So one thing that it does is that it makes it so that um, child welfare agencies have to do what's called active efforts um, to reunite a child with their parent. And so if that's providing counseling, if that's helping that parent get housing, they have to show that they've done active efforts. The second thing that the law does is that it gives tribes a say in cases that involve their children. And so tribes can move cases to tribal court or they can actually intervene in the state court proceedings. So just like because I, you know, I live in Cherokee County, Oklahoma. And so if I was a kid, you know, my county and my jurisdiction are, they're actually represented in the court proceedings about what should happen to a child. And so just like Oklahoma has an interest in its children, indigenous nations have mm -hmm. an interest in its children. And then the last thing that ICWA does, and this is what upsets some people, is that it lays out placement preferences for if a child um, is being either voluntarily put up for adoption or is in the child welfare system and is not going to be reunited with their parents, where that child should go next. So the first placement preference is their family. And that can actually be non-Native folks. You know, if you have a Native parent and a non-Native parent, you know, an aunt on your non-Native side qualifies just like your family on your Native side. Um, if there's no family that's available, the second placement preference is another citizen of that child's tribe. And then the last placement preference is another Native home. And so it's a way to try and keep children first connected to their family, um, second connected to their tribe and to their culture, and then um, still within a Native home. All right. We've foreshadowed enough. <laughs> Rebecca. Thank you for laying out what ICWA does. But 
this suit kind of has, I don't want to say it has nothing to do with it, but at its heart, the reason why there's so much money in it, the reason why these people are so invested in it, Rebecca, what is it really about? <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the million dollar question. Um, and I, and I think honestly, it's like different for different players. And so, um, you know, the, the private adoption industry, um, historically, so, so big agencies that represent the private adoption industry, like the National Council for Adoption and the American Academy of Adoption Attorneys, they have taken the public position in these cases that they oppose ICWA. And they oppose any law that regulates adoption because there is a shortage of available children for adoption, and they want there to be more children available for adoption, not less. Um, the other thing, but that's still sort of about the kids. See, I'm I'm curious because eventually, yeah, we get someplace really weird. <laughs> yeah, and so the other thing that we found um, by looking at the lawyers who are bringing these cases is that they also work a lot on behalf of the gaming and betting industry, which is an industry that comes up against tribes and tribal casinos a lot and see view tribal casinos as competition. And what's interesting is when it comes to the very specific legal arguments that they're making in these cases, um, specifically about ICWA being racial discrimination, and then they make this other case about states' rights. They've made those same arguments in in cases where they're trying to undermine tribal gaming. And so they've, they've taken those arguments and they've brought them over to ICWA. Um, and then the, the big law firm that is bringing this case and is representing the individual plaintiffs um, is deeply, deeply, deeply tied to the oil industry. It's kind of like tied for first place with another law firm is like really just representing the oil industry more than really other law firms in the world. Um, they were the law firm that represented the company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline, Um Organ like uh, lobbyists that represent their clients have talked about how the indigenous protests since then really need to be stopped and how it's like hurting the industry. Um, and so there's a lot of money to be made if indigenous sovereignty is limited or is hurt. And that's that's really how native leaders see this case is that, um, and you kind of have to understand federal Indian law to understand how, but basically they're saying that ICWA is based on race, that whether you're a child, a native child under the statute or a native parent under the statute, that's race-based and therefore it's unconstitutional. But it's actually based on tribal citizenship. So the law only applies to children who are either enrolled in a tribe or eligible for enrollment. And if ICWA is unconstitutional because it's based on race. Well, what about my tribe's right to operate a casino on trust land? What about my tribe's right mm, to what? have trust land? You know, I go to a hospital to get my medical care that would turn non-Native people away. So how can I go to that hospital, but other people can't? And it's because I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation and the federal government has a treaty and trust responsibility to provide health care to the citizens of my tribe because it signed treaties with my tribe prior to seem to do that, you know? But it's, it's so, and so people, Native leaders really see this case as, um, 
undermining tribal sovereignty and attacking the heart of tribal sovereignty and being kind of like the first in a series of dominoes where if if you can get ICWA to topple on on this basis, then other things will follow. What you're telling me, Rebecca, is that there's money to be made. There's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of money to be made. <laughs> there's, it's surprisingly, there's deep pockets because there's deep, you know, dough yeah. on the other side. But I just want to repeat back to you what I think you said, just because it's fascinating. And I think I want to make it really clear. There is some talk, there is some reason that is somewhat about, this case is about kids. Okay, fine. But if you dig deep, what you are seeing is an attempt to establish precedent to undo almost everything that exists to protect tribal sovereignty. If if the Supreme Court took this case in the broadest way possible and decided it based on the broadest way possible, it would absolutely set that precedent. And it's interesting because you already see um, some people making that argument in other areas. So um, people are already, people have tried and are already making this like kind of like equal protection race-based argument in other areas of federal Indian law. And, and some people are even doing it based on this case. And so I don't think we have to like take a wild stretch of the imagination to see the broader implications of it. Um, and then what I want to add is that I actually, I actually do think, and this was something that I was surprised by, um, is that some people are fighting ICWA for ideological reasons. Um, and that ideology is that, um, our country should not have laws that are race conscious, um, should not have laws that are remedies to structural racism. And the thinking behind that is that the way to solve racism is to stop talking about race and to pretend like it doesn't exist. And so when you look at the people who are attacking ICWA, a lot of them have also fought things like affirmative action, um, you know, it's some of the same players that were behind the Abigail Fisher case and now mm-hmm. the Harvard case. Um, you know, we talked about the Voting Rights Act. It's some of those people. And I think there is this really deep ideological divide, which I, I think in some ways is kind of intellectually dishonest because we can see all the ways that systemic racism in the child welfare system exists. But any, like, effort to remedy that is what is unfair. (laughs) I think one of the things that's very telling about this lawsuit is that they're trying to get rid of something and not trying to build something different. I think if you're concerned about children in foster care, there is a lot of reason to be concerned about the well-being of children in foster care in the country right now, <laughs> you know? And there's also a lot of reasons to see, you know, there's a lot of evidence that ICWA actually does a lot of good. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think if their end goal was really helping Native children, they would be trying to build something, not trying to destroy something. So when I, I look at this case and your podcast and what I've learned, you know, the cases itself about both children and the ability of um, non-Native people to adopt Native children in a echo of the boarding school 
you know, system a little bit that echoes, not the same, but it's an echo. And it's about who controls the resources uh, in native land, native sovereignty. You know, you can't oppress a people just, you know, by just in culture or just in economics. It's both. It's always both. You're always you're oppressing both these both these lanes. And it made me start to think about reparations, which we talk a lot about in terms of slavery. But I really hear so much less discussion when it comes to indigenous people. I mean, hardly any. I think I've talked to one person about it. But this case raises it for me hmm. because it's, ta- it's, it's talking about the most precious resources you have at, yeah. in a community, yeah. which is the children and yeah. who were taken. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I interviewed Native leaders, one thing one thing that more than one Native leader said to me was, you know, if if we can't protect our children, then what can we protect? You know, if we can't if we can't keep our children um then then what else do we have? Um, yeah, and I think when it comes to what justice looks like for indigenous nations, um, you know, the slogan or the hashtag or what will you, but the thing that people are talking about a lot right now is um, land back. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that looks like a lot of different things. And so, you know, under Secretary Deb Holland, she's trying to make the tribes putting land back in trust easier. Um, There's been some proposals that national parks or national forests should be returned to the stewardship of indigenous nations. And I think it's also um, restoring sovereignty over the land that we have that is recognized and really um, creating a legal reality where tribes, the inherent rights of our tribes to govern our land, to govern our citizens, is recognized. And right now what we have in the United States, thinks in large part to the Supreme Court, um, some things that Congress has done, but mostly the Supreme Court, is that that's piecemeal. And so when you look at mm-hmm. civil jurisdiction, criminal jurisdiction, the right of law, the right of tribes to do everything from taxation to, you know, arrest somebody from speeding, for speeding, it it's very complicated. And I think what we need is a full restoration of tribal sovereignty and tribal jurisdiction on tribal land and also restoring land to tribes. And my last thought, not to be too meta, but I think, you know, as our country faces a growing ecological and climate crisis, um, you know, I think that restoration of tribal sovereignty is going to be critical for all of us and is what yeah. is best for all of us. You know, there's this statistic that, you know, indigenous people globally um, control about like 5% of the land in the globe, but um, protect 80% of biodiversity. And so, mm-hmm. you know, indigenous peoples, we really have the knowledge of that stewardship that is so desperately needed right now. All of that sounds good. There is a part of me that the reason I specifically mentioned reparations is it's not enough. I mean, it's funny because like we're, you talk about restoring. Restoring, yes, that's to restore to someone what they once had. It's giving back the thing that you had. But like if I have a house and you come and kick me out of my house yeah. and then you rent the house out for years and years and you get all this money from the house... And then you're like, oh, and by the way, you can have the house back here. 
go ahead. Yeah. But I'm going to keep all that money. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. keep all the stuff that, that I got out of the thing that, yeah. that I took from you. Well, and what happened to indigenous people is like we were held at gunpoint and kicked yeah. out of the house. But then we yeah, also I mean, at I, that I, time. I, it was way too tame an example. Yeah, but. yeah. But and at that time, though, we our ancestors had enough political power to negotiate treaties. And so mm-hmm. in exchange for billions of acres of land, the U.S. made certain promises to Native nations that the United States still isn't meeting, you know? And so um, that, I think, I, I, you know, I think we should, you know, Australia is going to pay reparations to um survivors of their version of boarding schools. And I think that was announced very recently. Um, And I think that there's a lot of space to talk. I mean, you know, everything from forced sterilization and IHS Mm -hmm. to like what happened with the Federal Indian Adoption Project to survivors of boarding school, what has happened to um, Indigenous families. I think there's a lot of space to talk about reparations for those programs and the damage that those programs have done. But we haven't even gotten close. We're not even close to the place where the United States is actually fulfilling its treaty obligations. And so what the U.S. said in legal documents that it would do in exchange for that land, the U.S. still hasn't done. And so um, I I think we're just starting at a very very basic, (laughs) basic levels and very basic (laughs) things could still be done (laughs) to improve the situation. So in your first episode, you talk about the twin motivations that white people have uh, for helping, quote unquote, helping Native people, greed and charity. So I've been thinking a lot about that. And I wonder if those two things are all that different, at least as expressed by white people towards native people and podcast listeners, Rebecca's already like nodding her head at me. (laughs) But what my thought was, is that charity as expressed in this way is a form of greed. It's greediness to feel good about yourself. It's greediness to be seen virtuous. It's greediness to be seen as virtuous. It's, it's greed for the biggest number of converts. I mean, I'm not even talking about the financial thing that's probably in there too but they're kind of the same. Yeah. I mean, and I think, um, you know, in my reporting, I think I, I found both, you know, I found economic incentives with clear ties to the lawyers who are bringing these cases. I found a paper trail that laid out why this case was part of a broader agenda to build conservative power. And then we also found, you know, blog entries and court testimony and and even like entire books people have written about racism in the United States from a white man's perspective. But, you know, where people (laughs) are really motivated by personal and ideological reasons. And I think that, um, you know, we think that it is a big space um, between something like greed and charity. And I think when you look at history, um, when it comes to the policies that have harmed Native children, it's always been both. Um, You know, I think we're able to see now how violent and how awful the boarding schools were. But at the time, they were talked about as charity. You know, most of the boarding schools in the United States were run by churches. And, you know, as I was going through and researching for the podcast, I found, 
this like leaflet from the Catholic Church that was circulated to try and get donations for one of these schools. And they talked about how, you know, if you were a good Christian, you would donate to this cause and you would get rewards from God for donating to this cause. And so, you know, I think the solution to that is that is indigenous self-determination and that what is best for Native children needs to be up to Native people ourselves because I don't think that we can afford to have another history lesson um, because of we know how much trauma Native children and Native families have already survived. So I want to kind of take that point that was made in the Catholic pamphlet and kind of bring it up to today because that's another thing I've been thinking about. Because that's that's the emotional greediness, right? Like that's like I want to feel good about myself. I want to get these gifts from God, um, and I wonder if you that, and I wonder if you think that still exists today. Maybe even among, well, I think those Catholic people who donated were probably well-meaning white folks, but people who think of themselves as well-meaning white folks who might agree with us politically might be doing some of that same thing. And I, I wonder if you have some advice for those of us who want to be allies about how to think of ourselves in relation to Native communities? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing um, isn't, like I said before, is Indigenous self-determination. And so I think when allyship looks like supporting and following Indigenous people, um, you know, I think that that's what's most important. And so I, I think... You know, what I would say, because um, a lot of times I get like asked, like, what can I do? What can I do? And I really think that um, when we see political movements that are effective, it's always based in relationships. You know, it doesn't come out of good intentions and things like that. Movements that are effective are really based in relationships. And so I think it's really important for people to find, you know, the urban native community where they are, the urban IHS facility or the tribe where they are and and try and reach out and build those relationships. Um, you know, maybe it's on social media, maybe it's in the area that you're in, you know, maybe you're, um, you know, really into, um, I don't know, uh, like <laughs> games or something, you know, like, but finding those like indigenous content creators or those indigenous leaders in the area that you're in and really putting those people front and center and building those relationships. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that is it for the show. Thanks to Rebecca for coming on. Again, she is the host of This Land, which is now starting season two. We are also a production of Crooked Media and produced by Alison Herrera with assistance from Izzy Margulies. Only thing I want to say this week, things are rough out there. Remember, you're not alone. Reach out for help if you need it. Reach out if you think someone else needs your help. Both of those things are good for the soul. Please, take care of yourself. Not everything in life is flexible, but at Capella University, your education can be. 
With our game-changing FlexPath learning format, you're empowered to fit education into your life without putting other priorities on hold. FlexPath lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them when needed. You can take courses at your own speed and move on to the next one when you're ready. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.